We're in Genesis 29 tonight. Last time we were in Genesis was June 1st, and on the morning of June 2nd, as most of you know, I suffered a stroke. Super fun, exciting time for all of us. Uh, it was as a result of they found a hole in between my atria and my heart, and uh, the Lord has been very kind and very gracious to us and very merciful. And uh, we're thankful. I'm thankful to be here with you, thankful to be alive for my family. And the Lord was really sweet to us while we were in the hospital and showing Himself to be good and showing us that He was there with us and speaking to us from His Word. And we're so thankful for the prayer and the support and just the kindness from um, you guys for prayers and, and uh, a lot of stuff that you guys have done on our behalf, showing us love. We're so thankful for that. Uh, my doctors expect me to make a full recovery uh, for a stroke patient. I'm doing pretty good as it is, and uh, hopefully the plan is the the plan is that uh, I'll have a procedure to close that hole in my heart, which will get me back to regular life. And hopefully in the next uh, six or eight weeks is the timeline that we're hoping for. Um, but I'm just, uh, looking forward to that. And uh, worst case scenario, they just will keep me on medicine the rest of my life to help protect me from further stroke events. So the Lord's been really good and, and really kind to us, and, and we're just praising Him and thanking Him uh, day by day, and we're thankful for you guys as well and, and all that you've done for us. But I'm excited to be back in Genesis tonight, see how this goes. Genesis 29, as we're continuing to look at the life of Jacob as we move through this wonderful book. Now, at first glance, our passage tonight reads like a classic boy-meets-girl story against steep odds and with the help of some chivalry and the serendipitous crossing of paths, our characters find each other and live happily ever after, except we know that they don't live happily ever after. There are many long years of resentment and manipulation and disappointment and general weirdness ahead. The story also reads like a classical biblical archetype that comes up from time to time, and that's the story of the life-changing meeting at the well. There's actually a few of these scattered throughout the Bible. We think of Abraham's servant and Rebekah. We've already studied through that one. Uh, Moses and Zipporah, his wife, have a similar meeting. Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John 4. And here we have another version, Jacob and Rachel. But again, as we look at this variation, this version of that story, we notice that this one lacks something. Uh, there's no personal interaction with the Lord. There's no prayer. There's no praise. There's no acknowledgement of God's grace. There's no thanks given to Him. Upon examination and comparison of this passage, we really can't help but be a little disappointed with Jacob in this scene, as we are in so many others during this phase of his life. And, and, and that's not because he should be perfect, but it's because these are not stories of a man walking by faith. Uh, we're still reading the saga of a man who's uh, wrestling with God, contending with God and those around him. He's not driven by a desire to glorify God at this point in his life. He's not concerned about his own responsibilities. In fact, he's a very self-oriented man. And he's sort of blown about in life by his circumstances 
or, or whatever he needs to do to avoid the consequences of his selfishness and what he thinks would be a good idea. Now, we have no idea how the story might have gone if Jacob had responded to God in faith and humility and surrender. But what we do know is that he is making decisions that lead to a lot of hardship. Now, some Bible scholars think, well, yeah, this is exactly what God wanted for him because Jacob needed to be disciplined. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, we would have to look and say, is Jacob following after the Lord? Is he obeying the Lord? Is he uh, speaking really even to the Lord? And, And we don't see him doing these things. The good news is that while we're watching man's failure, we have to notice that man's failure cannot overthrow the faithfulness of God or the goodness of God or His merciful grace toward us. And that's such a great hope because we're going to have times of failure or we're going to have times when we think that we're going in the right direction in life when in reality we're way off, uh, off track. And we want to be reminded by God's holy word that the Lord will not abandon us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He doesn't want us to go our own way, and it doesn't mean there won't be any consequences. But he says, hey, I'm with you, and I have a plan to restore you back into that fellowship with me that I've wanted from before the foundation of the earth. And so this is a a disappointing passage in some ways, but it's also a very hopeful one as we see the Lord and his faithfulness. So let's look at verse 1. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. The Hebrew here indicates that he had a spring in his step. There's a a weird idiom that's found here that the commentators like to highlight. He's feeling great. Uh, Why is he heading east, though? It's because he's on the run, right? He's running for his life. He's fleeing a scandal. He's left behind the land of promise that belongs to his family and to him specifically, even though the Lord has made it very clear that he wants this family in the land of Canaan. As we've been tracking through the life of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob and his family, you know, the Lord has said so many times over and over again, this is the land I want you in. And the times when they have left the land, like when Abraham went down to Egypt, the Lord's like, can we get, let's get you back into Canaan. Or when it was time to find Isaac a wife, it was like, hey, don't let him leave the land, right? And, and so the Lord very clearly wants this family in this specific land. And even when he revealed himself to Jacob, who's on the run right now, he was on the road. Uh, this is what we saw, uh, you know, back in June. At, we saw that vision of Jacob's ladder. And the point of it was God said, I'm going to be with you. And my plan is to get you back into the land. And so there he is, though heading east with a spring in his step. Uh, Some commentators think, well, Jacob is so joyful because now he knows God is with him and that knowledge has lifted away all his cares and he's in just a great spiritual state. But we haven't seen seen the man transformed at all. He hasn't worshiped. Uh, He set up a marker, but he didn't build an altar to the Lord. When God professed his loving kindness to Jacob in the last passage, remember, what was Jacob's response? He responded to this God who, who showed him his glory and, and made all these wonderful personal promises to him. Here's how Jacob responded. He said, oh, we'll see. We'll see about that. And if you do this, that, and the other thing, then you can be my God, and we'll see. And so it's a very uh, cool response. And so it's hard to say that he was in some sort of spiritual reverie with the Lord and and really on track with him. And yet, he's cheerful, lighthearted, springing in his step. 
You know, in Genesis, movements to the east are generally not a good thing as a sub-theme. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden to the east of Eden. Cain went out from the Lord's presence living to the east. Those God-rejecting peoples who built the Tower of Babel settled in Shinar in the east. Lot separated from Abram and went to the east to his own ruin. So Jacob may have been cheery, but he's fooling himself if he thinks he's making good progress in his life. Listen, he's going to a pagan land, to a pagan people, to become one of them for 20 years, way far outside of the the specific land that God wanted him to be in. Now, God had checked in with Jacob in the last passage, but it made no difference in his direction. He didn't say, oh, wow, let me turn around and, and face the consequences of, what, of that scandal that I brought on my family. Let me turn around and figure out how we can patch together the family of faith again, and I can humble myself and, and, and try to make things right that I've done wrong. He didn't do any of that. He said, oh, cool, the God must live here in Bethel. Well, see ya. And he just kept heading on uh, toward the east. We see those tender moments in the Old Testament where the Lord would, would come to people who were on the run, and He would sort of interrupt them, and He would say, hey, what are you doing? We've seen it already before. He, he came to Hagar, and what did He say? He said, Hagar, where have you come from, and where are you going? I mean, the Lord knows. He doesn't need that question answered. It's a question for us. It's a question for the person. Hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? You, you shouldn't be on the run in this way. Later in the book of Kings, God's going to come to Elijah, his great servant, the great prophet, and Elijah's on the run, uh, running for his life too. And he comes to Elijah and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah doesn't get it. Uh, he just says, I'm the only person who believes and, and, and I'm going to die and you're not going to protect me and I, you should just kill me since you're not going to do good for me. And, and the Lord's trying to be tender to him and explain to him, hey, you, you are not where you are supposed to be. Those are moments when people are invited to surrender to God. God coming to them and saying, what are you doing and where are you going, is a moment for them to say, oh, I don't know. I, I want to be with you, and I want to go with you, and, and, and so where do you want me to go? That's the real answer. I, I don't know where I'm going. Where do you want me to go? What if the Lord asks you those questions in your life right now? I'm guessing most of us aren't you know, uh, running for our lives literally right now, but we are running the race of life, and we're all making decisions, and we're all orienting our lives in certain directions and making life decisions, those sorts of things. And so you know, the Lord in His Word would come to each of us, not in rebuke and not in anger, but in tenderness and in kindness, and He would just say, hey, where have you come from and where are you going? What are you, do- where- what are you doing-, doing in the place that you're doing? You know, he's just, he would check in with us the way that he's checking in with these folks here. You know, uh, could we answer the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going where you've led. Uh, I'm doing your business according to the callings that you've placed on my life. Or would we have to say, actually, I'm making decisions kind of like Jacob. Somebody told me I should head over here. My mom said, go to Laban, and so I'm going. And that way, I don't have to face up to my brother. I don't have to face up to my dad. We can all just pretend like nothing weird has happened. Uh, it's a good question for us to ask. Verse 2, he looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well, but a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there, and they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. So this stone covering the mouth of the well becomes a major plot point. 
uh, I was realizing or thinking about how rocks are a big part of Jacob's life story. Uh, he used a stone as a pillow in our last passage. That was kind of weird. The stone here features very prominently in the story. Later, there's going to be a significant use of stones in his feud with Laban. The association of stones with Jacob is interesting because each of the patriarchs has had some things that are associated with them. Uh, Abraham was known for building altars, and he was known for planting a terebinth tree. Isaac was known for digging wells. And so we have altars and trees and wells. Those are useful things, things that bless and things that benefit, things that grow and, and, and have activity around them. And rocks? Effectively, we just see Jacob sort of moving rocks around uh, in this portion of his life and, and, and setting up monuments to his misunderstandings and his contentions with the Lord and with others. He sort of reminds me of Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin, right? Charlie Brown's going trick-or-treating. All of the other kids are getting all kinds of candy and stuff. And Charlie Brown opens up his pillowcase, and what has he got? Uh, he's just got rocks in there. Also, what's the matter with all the community around Charlie Brown? He's such a nice guy in there. Who, what kind of person gives a rock to a kid on Halloween? But, but that's Jacob, but it's his own doing. Uh, he's busy splitting rocks while his dad's digging wells and, and his grandfather was planting trees and building altars. It's just an interesting comparison. Verse 4 says, Jacob asked the men at the well, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. So Jacob greets them with a real warm, forward friendliness here. That is until we remember how he treats his brothers. I don't think you want to be brothers with Jacob, but they didn't know that. Now, the locals are really curt in their replies to Jacob. They, they, they say very little back to him in this whole scene. But try to imagine this situation. They all know each other. They're going about their regular daily routine. And then out of the desert, just, you know, walks up this lone guy they've never seen before. No camel, no donkey, no wagon, no servants. And he walks up to him and he says, where am I? Uh, and, and it's also likely that these shepherds were young men. They were youths. And so uh, I get while they maybe didn't want to start up a big conversation with this guy. Verse 5, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Jacob asked them. They answered, we know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with his sheep. Again, the shepherds say very little. And if you look at commentaries and study Bibles, they'll say that. I mean, the, the language indicates they were very short, just monosyllabic, like, yes. Is he well? Well. They just, they, you know, they don't want to say much about it. Now, what, what could we make out of that? Well, maybe they were suspicious of this, you know, wild-eyed, strange wanderer in their midst. That's normal. But I was thinking maybe they didn't say much about Laban because they knew him too well, right? They knew him. They knew his daughter, and they didn't have anything to say. What did Thumper's mom say? If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all, right? And we know, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis and these stories, and if you know anything about Laban, there isn't anything nice to say about Laban. He's a bum. And so, you know, when people are kind and generous, we like to tell that story, right? Uh, we, we don't like to keep it a secret when someone is really generous, uh, you know, in, in, our, in our experience. Uh, just recently, Shaquille O'Neal was in the news because he went to a restaurant for dinner, and when he went in, he paid $25,000 to cover every meal at every table while he was there. 
And you know what? People like to spread that story because it's awesome, and it's refreshing to hear about generosity like that. Do you know Laban? Oh, we know him. Yeah, we know that guy. Uh, We know enough to steer clear of him is probably what they wanted to say. But it was a reminder to me that our lives are a fragrance. It's not that we live to please people. We don't. But we want to be like our Lord, right? Gracious like our Lord and generous like our Lord and forgiving like our Lord and welcoming like our Lord. The fragrance of Christ is so needed in a needy world. And man, everything out in the world right now just stinks to high heaven, right? Everything is just so rotten and angry and, and miserly and frustrated out there. And the church is supposed to be completely different. We are supposed to be the, the fragrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not everyone will appreciate the smell. The New Testament explains that. But we certainly don't want to stink like Laban must have stunk to the community around him. But back to our scene. Here's Rachel, finally, boy meets girl. Although it's not exactly boy meets girl, it's old man meets girl. Uh, Jacob is at least 70 years old, Uh, maybe like 73 or 77, depending on how you count. We can calculate it because we know how old Joseph is when, uh, when he becomes, you know, second in charge of Egypt. We know how old Jacob is when he gets there. And so, uh, he's in his 70s, and Rachel is maybe in her 20s. So I'm sorry if that ruins anything for you. Life was different uh, 4,000 years ago. But I'll say this. This is probably not how Rachel would want to meet a potential suitor. I mean, it's hard for either of them to make a good first impression while sweaty and grimy and smelling like livestock. Ladies, do you want to go on your first date with somebody uh, after you've been working in the yard all day? You know, and he's just walked hundreds of miles without a change of clothes. Man, I mean, so this is, this is not great. Uh, but before Jacob introduces himself to Rachel, he does take the time to hassle some strangers that he's just met. Verse 7, and Jacob said, look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock and then go out and let them graze. And they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. A lot of commentators really jump quick to say that these shepherds are just lazy. Uh, They're called shiftless and unreasonable shirkers. Maybe, I mean, that's possible, I guess. Or maybe this was the custom of that locale. They said it was. They said, hey, we can't do it. This is what we have to do. And this is the plan. We all get here and then we all do this. Um, To suggest that it was sheer laziness seems unfair. Because for all of these shepherds, sheep were their livelihood. And I doubt any of them wanted to starve. I doubt any of them wanted to be beaten by their masters when they said, yeah, another 10 sheep died today because we didn't water them properly. So I don't know. Commentators just jump at the strangest things. You know, I've done a little bit of traveling to South America uh, uh, with the guys here. and, And, you know, one of the things that we notice when we've gone down there is that you know, they do things, some things differently than we do in the United States, and some things really differently. And between you and me, they do some things wrong, right, compared to the way that we do it. And there's been plenty of times where we've thought, and in the privacy of our own room, said, 
you know, the way we do things is so much better. They should do it this way. Instead, they're doing it that way. But we hold our tongues because it's rude to act that way. You don't go up to people, even people you know, and say, you're doing this wrong. And look at Jacob here. He's just a hobo who's walked out of the desert, and he's saying, this is what you guys need to do. You start doing this, that, and the other thing. It's, think of it this way. If you were out doing yard work in your front yard or gardening, and some filthy stranger walks up to you and says, you're doing it wrong. You should do it the opposite of how you're doing it. Are you encouraged by that? Do you say, wow, thanks, desert hobo. How else should I change my life? You probably have a lot of good things that, you know, for me to say. No, we don't do that. But that's what Jacob is doing because that's who Jacob is, right? Because he's not transformed by the power of God at this point. He's a heel catcher. He's someone who trips up all the time in his dealings with others. He's a wrestler, a contender. It's like he can't help himself but hassle people that have no business being hassled. He's convinced his way is the right way. And you know what? Okay, I'm that kind of person too. I'm the kind of person that knows exactly how I want things done and, and it shouldn't be done another way as far as my inner monologue is concerned. But like... We need, if you're like me, take a look at Jacob. You don't want to be a Jacob. It's like one of those personality, or it's like one of those public services announcements. Don't be like Jacob, you know, and he's out there pointing at the shepherds. How's it working out for Jacob to do life his way so far? How's that going for him? Is it going really well? Do you want to be like Jacob in this scene? Do you want to have the problems he has? Do you want to have the, the, the frustrations and the, and the grudges that he's dealing with? Um, and it just comes out of the, the pride of his heart and his unwillingness to humble himself and say, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not listening to what God's telling me for my life. I'm not listening to what these people do. He's in a completely different nation in a completely different you know, like region. This is what you all need to be doing. We don't want to be people like that. Bruce Waltke points out that this scene is a beautiful demonstration of God's perfect, gracious providence. Jacob didn't even know where he was, and yet he has met the right people in the right place at the wrong time, as far as Jacob is concerned. According to Jacob's wisdom, they shouldn't even be at the well during this hour, and he's complaining to them about that. He's accusing them of saying, you're not doing it right, but if they weren't there right then, where would he be? He would have kept going, walking into the wilderness. He has no idea where he is. He would have missed Rachel, who's going to become one of his wives. And so it's just crazy. Here they are. And he says, you, you shouldn't even be here. And the Lord's like, yeah, I, I've provided for you to meet these people here because I'm being gracious to you so that you don't die in the desert and so that you can have some shelter and, and so that you can, uh, you know, have this interaction that you're looking for. And so, man, the Lord's faithfulness to the faithless is uh, beautifully on display here. Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Rachel's the first shepherdess mentioned in the Bible. She would have been young, but tough and experienced. She would have been a very hard worker, a great problem solver. She would have had to know how to find pasture and lead her lambs to it. But looking ahead, we learn that she was not paid for these long days of dangerous work. 
She's going to tell Jacob, her husband, later on that she was, had no portion, no inheritance from her father. In fact, she will explain to Jacob that Laban considered her as an outsider to be sold away. Uh, and so, man, she's a lady with a lot of strength, a lot of uh, personal fortitude, and she is slaving for her dad and getting nothing in return, not even fatherly affection. We'll find that in many ways she's very like Jacob in personality. Uh, they both are headstrong. They both deal deceptively with others. They both manipulate. They both have strained family relationships, rivalry with their siblings. They'll both cheat to get a victory over others. But that's the bad stuff. The good stuff is that they were both loved by God. They were both redeemed by Him and ultimately transformed into vessels of honor. And that's a, a, a great hope and just a, a great thing for us. Look at what God can do with people like this. God can do incredible things with inadequate people, and that's very good news. We are inadequate. Hopefully, we're not going out into the, the world and treating people the way Jacob is here. But even if we are that kind of person, the Lord's like, look what I can do. Look at how I can transform. Look at how I can conform you into an image that is not that, but is this, an image of grace and an image of my uh, glory and an image of my kindness that is sent to shine out into a lost and dying world. Verse 10, as soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Some say that this was a Herculean feat that Jacob hulked out, that it would have taken immense strength to move the stone. Maybe that's possible, though no one in the text marvels at it. Certainly, Jacob had a lot of vigor and strength, even at 70 years old. He's going to work out with these sheep for 20 years after this. I mean, so he's got a lot of vitality. We immediately remember and recall how Rebecca worked so tirelessly to water the 10 camels back in 24 in the sort of mirror story between Abraham's servant and Rebecca compared to Jacob and Rachel here. But there really is a significant difference. Jacob ignored the other flocks. Worse than that, rather than this being an act of servant-hearted grace, this was presumptuous, maybe even unlawful based on what they said. The shepherds had just said, here's how we do things. We can't water the flock until X, Y, and Z happens. And what does Jacob do? He just takes what he wants. It's not his well. It's not his sheep. It's not his turn. Rebecca had made sure all the camels had their fill. Jacob cuts in line with no regard for any of the other thirsty flocks around him. The watering of Abraham's camels had been the sign that God had brought the servant to the woman the Lord intended for Isaac. Jacob's watering here seems to be done as a way to ingratiate himself to Laban, not Rachel. Look at verse 10 again and notice the perspective. It's as if we are looking through Jacob's eyes. Does he see Rachel, this lovely woman? No, he sees Laban's daughter, Laban's sheep. It's, it's, it's repeated deliberately multiple times. And so, you know, from what we're reading here, I don't think Jacob's mind is on marriage at all. He needs a place to stay. He needs food and shelter. He needs clothing and coverage and help. Uh, and remember, importantly, he has nothing to offer. No gifts, no camels, no money. He's there to mooch off his mom's family. And so he elbows to his way to the front of the water line. 
He could have waited. That would have been common courtesy. Rachel wasn't going anywhere. She was there to get water, but he's always looking out for number one. When Shaquille O'Neal bought all those dinners, he was there on a date. Ah, okay. I see what you did there. I'm guessing he doesn't spend $25,000 every time he goes to eat, but he was on a date. That probably made a pretty good impression, right? Now, imagine if instead of doing what he did, he had said, hold on, you know, my date, be, ro- be right back. And he went to the cook in the restaurant. He said, I'm important. Stop cooking everyone else's food and serve me first and serve me only. That's not quite as romantic, ladies, right? Which, 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 <laughs> which gesture would you prefer on a date with, you know, on your first date? Probably not, uh, not what Jacob did. Verse 11, and Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. Commentators are so funny. They want to say it was love at first sight, but then they're quick to say, but this wasn't a kiss of love. It was just a familial kiss of greeting. You know, either way, it would have been a shock for Rachel. Again, put yourself in this position, some weirdo from the desert who has just associated himself with you, which makes everyone else at the well mad at you. These are your co-workers in a sense. You have to see these people. He just broke the rules and cut your sheep in line. She's going to hear about that next time she comes to the well. And now he's planting one on her. He's all dusty and grimy from walking like 500 miles. This is not great. Also, it's the very first kiss between a man and a woman in the Scripture. That's nice. If only it was nicer. Uh, (laughs) But again, we contrast this moment with Rebecca and the servant of Abraham. Waltke again writes, Unlike Abraham's servant, Jacob offers no praise, for he has made no petition. On the surface, all seems well, but underneath lurks dark trouble. And so it's such a strange scene. And suddenly Jacob, like, he's kissing some stranger, he's, and, and he wails out crying. And we read this, and we've read, read this before, and obviously, the, you know, the Bible is written in a way that, you know, it, we understand that strange things happen sometimes, but this is weird. Like, suddenly he's just, like, crying, this guy who's just kissed you. This is just weird. Try to put yourself in Rachel's position. Uh, You know, Jacob's emotional outburst signals perhaps this is a man who is not peacefully established in his personal life. (laughs) I need to live with you. Oh, great. I can't wait. Let's go home and see how this works out. Verse 12, he told Rachel, I'm your father's relative, Rebecca's son, So she ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him and hugged him and kissed him. And he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. It had been almost a hundred years since Abraham's servant had come and fetched Rebekah from Laban. Last time someone came from the house of Abraham, they showed up with many camels laden with wealthy gifts, right? And he had given a bunch of them to to Laban and his family. Now, one dude with nothing. Oh, I've got a big inheritance back home, but I can't go there because my brother will kill me. Uh, You got food and shelter and clothing for me, right? I'm going to have to crash here for like 20 years, you know? (laughs) Compared to the original find a lady at the well story, This one ends up feeling like when Disney makes a direct-to-video sequel of a beloved classic. You think, really? 
man, the, the, the original was so much better. <laughs> that was a real love story. I'm not sure what this is, you know. We expect better given how much potentials the characters have, right? As we watch Jacob, we see that he, he has great strength and vigor. He has boldness and know-how. He has determination and decisiveness and endurance. He has depth of emotion. He had so many wonderful components that could have been used for great spiritual benefit but he wasn't living for the Lord. He's still trying to go his own way. He's still trying to navigate his own life and solve his own problems. And, he, and he's heard from the Lord, but he really has no interest in, in following up with the Lord or, or really going the Lord's way. And you know, after 70 years of life, what does he have to show for it? A family he can't see, an inheritance he can't enjoy, a promise he's left behind, a God he's ignoring, a few rocks in his pillowcase. It's pretty sad. All those great aspects of who he was were being spoiled because he was living an unfaith-filled life. Think about it. His great strength that he still had even in more advanced age, he was going to spend all that strength for 20 years in, a, in service to a pagan man who constantly cheated him. And he knew he was being cheated. But he's going to use all of his strength just for Laban. His boldness kept getting him into trouble with people around him, causing him to have to run for his life twice, first from Esau, then from Laban. His brash decisiveness leads to strain and misunderstandings wherever he goes. His depth of emotion is unchecked here and unbridled, making him act somewhat strange and erratic. He was knowledgeable, but in his selfishness, he just became a know-it-all, as we see him speaking to these shepherds here. He was knowledgeable. He did have know-how. And what good was it? It's just a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong. He's just bothering people instead of being used to benefit people. Jacob didn't need a change of scene. He needed a change of heart. He needed to believe God and stop trying to helm his own life. He needed to just pause and stop making decisions and listen and recognize that God had already spoken to him and spoken about what he wanted for his life. And Jacob needed to say, okay, let's go along with God instead of doing our own thing. Sadly, Jacob is going to spend 20 years somewhere the Lord didn't really want him to be. And Jacob had just, just so much trouble. And we see here that he had a lot of ideas about how sheep should be shepherded, but he wasn't willing to listen to his shepherd. He was the, the lost sheep just out in the wilderness, uh, you know, bouncing around from rock to rock until the Lord finally says, are you ready? Are you ready to submit and come back and follow me? And because that's what Jacob was doing, the result was not exactly green pastures and still waters. But God wasn't going to abandon his little lamb. He wouldn't just cut his losses and leave him be. No, as he promised, he stayed with Jacob and ultimately brought him back to that good pasture, the one Jacob had wandered away from. And so let's be sheep who trust our shepherd and go where he leads us. Sometimes it's, we think we have a better idea, but we never do. We have a good shepherd who will lead us faithfully, and let's be lambs that follow.